This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. We are also on channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomela Lezondi and Musa has your news, Joala Natulo has your economics and Musibudi Makura has your sports. It's 1700 hours Central African time. Let's take a look at the top stories. Security heightened in East Africa following the recent terror attack in France. Parts of Malawi left without houses and power following destructive rains. In economics, South Africa's weak rand negates most of the benefits of cheaper oil prices. And in sports, 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifiers underway across Africa. Here's En Musa. A very good afternoon to you. I'm Anne Musam. Rwanda Senate has approved a draft constitution to allow President Paul Kagame to seek a third term in office. This clears the path for a referendum not expected to face much opposition. Kagame is the latest long-serving ruler in Africa to attempt to extend his hold on power. Similar moves have already sparked violence and instability in Burundi and Congo Republic. So far, there has been no unrest in Rwanda. The Russian government is offering a 50 million US dollar reward to anyone who helps it detain those responsible for placing a bomb on a Russian passenger jet which exploded over Egypt last month, killing 224 people. News of the reward came after the Kremlin said the first time a bomb had ripped apart the plane and promised to hunt down those responsible and intensified airstrikes on Islamist militants in Syria's response. German police in the city of Aachen have arrested two women and a man in an operation linked to the Paris attacks, which killed at least 130 people. Police say they arrested the three after receiving leads. A spokesperson has declined to give more information. German broadcaster ARD says the arrest took place close to Germany's border with Belgium and the Netherlands. A manhunt is on is on in Europe for one of the eight attackers involved in the terror attacks. France, meanwhile, says messages of support it has received is a sign of solidarity to all victims. French Ambassador to South Africa, Elizabeth Barbier, says France will not allow terrorists to dictate how they should live. She says France will fight back. As our president declared yesterday, France will respond with all its might and its response will be fearless. This is not a conflict of civilizations. Because the jihadists don't represent any civilization. This is a war against global terrorism, which is why the response must be global. 
And finally, global environmental groups have expressed outrage at the failure of G20 leaders to support initiatives aimed at assisting poorer countries to cope with the impact of climate change. Leaders of the world's most developed economies have concluded their meeting in Turkey. Terrorism and global security dominated talks. There were high hopes that the summit would give efforts to slow global warming. Samantha Smith is leader of the Global Climate and Energy Initiative at the World Wildlife Fund. So we're pretty disappointed. Uh, The G20 could have done two things, and it could have done them immediately. And the first thing is it could have put more climate finance on the table for developing countries so they can adapt to climate change and cut emissions. The second thing is there are many countries in the G20 who are currently subsidizing fossil fuels for hundreds of billions of dollars. They could have agreed to a firm, time-bound plan to phase out those subsidies. They could use the money for something better, like helping their national poor, building schools and hospitals. And that's the news headlines at 5.30 Central African Time. You're still with Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa with Ms. Pomela Lezondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Your time is 17.05 Central African time. Thank you very much, and Musa, for that update. Security has been heightened in East Africa following the recent terror attack in France where more than 150 people were killed and others injured. According to security chiefs in East Africa, increased vigilance was necessary in the region in order to thwart possible terror and insecurity-related attacks in the region. In both Kenya and Uganda, security personnel are patrolling major government installations, shopping malls, embassies, airports and major tourist hotels. Both countries have previously been victims of terror attacks from the Al-Shabaab militants in Somalia where scores of people have been killed and others seriously injured. Meanwhile, Somali parliamentarians have demanded immediate withdrawal of Kenyan troops from Somalia, claiming they are involved in smuggling and illegal trade in the country but Kenya's defense minister has denied the allegations, saying Kenyan soldiers will remain in Somalia till the establishment of a security and political stability in Somalia. Here's Mike Ikonyo. He's in Nairobi. Security has been enhanced in the East African region following the deadly terrorist attack in Paris where more than 150 people are killed and schools injured. In both Kenya and Uganda, Police and other security agencies are patrolling almost all the streets of Nairobi and Kampala, especially along major government installations, embassies, shopping malls, parliamentary buildings, entry points and other public places. And according to police chiefs in East Africa, increased vigilance was necessary in order to thwart possible terror and insecurity related attacks similar to the recent terror attack in France. They claimed that the threat of terror attacks in East Africa was real. However, police did not elaborate on the security measures taken by the security forces, but they have urged the public to report any suspicious activity and people to security agencies for action. And according to Kenya's Defense Minister Rachel Mamo, Kenya empathizes with the French people having experienced such deadly terror attacks. We empathize with them from a position of knowledge, having experienced uh, similar incidents in Kenya. What is important is that uh, we continue to resolve, to work hard to eliminate this threat, 
to continue to work as a collective to further the course of, of peace, of stability, of goodwill and of freedom in our countries, in Paris, in Kenya, throughout the world. And since the deployment of Kenyan forces into Somalia in 2011, most towns and cities in the country remain highly vulnerable to terror attacks, despite heightened state of vigilance and terror-enhanced security checks. But Kenyan leaders have urged the government to withdraw Kenyan troops from Somalia in order to avoid their potential attacks from the Al-Shabaab insurgents. Also, Somali lawmakers have rejected the presence of Kenyan soldiers in Somalia, claiming they are directly involved in illegal activities in the country. But Kenya's Defense Minister Rachel Mamo says Kenya is part of the AU peacekeeping force in Somalia, Amisom, and cannot withdraw from Somalia till the establishment of peace and stability in the country. Kenya is part of Amisom and we operate under the instructions of Amisom. Uh, we are not in Somalia whimsically. We're there because the AU and the international community support our efforts there in the stabilization of the country. There will be uh, incidents where, you know, politicians say this, that and the other. But what is important is for us to focus on the stability of the country. We are there to assist in Amisen's agenda and to also ensure that there's security, peace and stability in our region. But I think unraveling out of a situation uh, that is as complex and as, as still and stable as Somalia is, isn't just a walk in the park. We will remain um, in Amisom until Amisom has achieved its objectives. And following the Paris terror attack, Kenyans are increasingly worried of a similar attack in the country and feel more vulnerable to acts of transnational terrorism. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. The UN Joint Human Rights Office has expressed concerns about the abuse of human rights in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The office has called for more efforts from the DRC government to ensure that the rights of opposition and civil society activists are protected as the country prepares for the 2016 elections. Here's Jean-Noël Bamwenze, who is in Kinshasa. The statement has followed the arrest of three militants of the National Union of Congolese Federalist UNAFEC last Thursday in Lubumbashi in the southeast of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Few days before, three other militants from another opposition political party, the New Forces for Union and Solidarity for News, were arrested here in Kinshasa. All of them are accused of disturbing law and order. But according to the director of the United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights here in Kinshasa, it's right for political actors to express their views and what's being done here is against the credibility of the electoral process. Jose Maria Aranaz. We are concerned that we've seen repression of these rights on the opposition and on civil society activists. However, we have to separate the cases of those arrested after the press conference of Fonus and those related to the incidents in Lubumbasi last week. We're worried that those in Lubumbasi related to the UNEFEC political party have not been able to be traced down 
and any arrest we call on to be referred to the judicial authorities as soon as possible. With regards to those of FONUS, the arrest took place at the beginning of November. So we're talking now about several days, them still under isolated detention, incommunicado, without presence of a lawyer and without having referred to the judicial authority, with the aggravating circumstance that one of them is an elderly lady of 68 years of age who has a medical condition. So we, their family is concerned that that person might have not been referring the medical attention that it is required. Some of the activists of the civil society movement known as Filimbi who were arrested after a press conference last March here in Kinshasa are still under arrest, although human rights organizations have called on these countries' authorities to let them free. The UN Joint Office for Human Rights has then described all these kinds of arrests as arbitrary ones. The office director, Jose Maria Aranas, called on the DRC government to stop such practices and make sure the rights of both opposition militants and civil society activists are respected as elections are expected here next year. We have brought to the attention of the authorities our grave preoccupation by the fact that the ANR authority is being used in an abusive manner against opposition, civil society and media in a way that it deters and it impairs the proper enjoyment of the freedom association and assembly and the minimum pluralism that will be required for holding credible elections and that's why we call on the authorities to stop this kind of practices and if anybody is being caught breaking the law it should be referred immediately to the judicial authorities and not to use the machinery of the state to repress the legitimate role that opposition should have in incredible elections. Pluralism is essential for holding credible elections without pluralism, without opposition, without civil society and without the media. Upcoming elections will not be credible. Meanwhile, the government spokesperson Lambert Mende, who's also the Minister of Communication and Media here, has said those political parties' militants will be brought to court very soon. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulturanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
Africa rising through innovative technologies to improve the quality of life of its people. From the 29th of November to the 3rd of December 2015, South Africa's city of gold, Johannesburg, will host the 7th AfroCities Summit. Delegates will have an opportunity to reflect on the challenges that local governments and partner states are faced with, the state of affairs and what steps have been taken to ensure that the objective to build a network of smart cities is realized. Channel Africa will be there bringing you live coverage. The AfroCity Summit is an engagement for Africa's local government authorities, which is organized every three years by the United Cities and Local Governments of Africa, UCLG Africa. This year's edition will be held under the theme, Shaping the Future of Africa with the People. The contribution of African local authorities to Agenda 2063 of the African Union. Smart cities will be one of the subjects explored during the five-day summit. So, join the Channel Africa between the 29th of November and the 3rd of December for coverage of AfroCities 2015. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. That's our email address if you want to get hold of us. The South African and United States of America vet authorities have signed a health protocol agreement allowing for the import of United States bone-in chicken portions. Kevin Lavell, chief executive officer for the South African Poultry Association, says the agreement deals with issues such as how to allow imported chickens to Southern African nations in the event of avian flu outbreaks in America without harming the local flocks. Well, what the vets have actually signed is a, a veterinary health protocol that will allow imports of any U.S. poultry product during times of an avian influenza outbreak, which the U.S. currently still has in terms of global rules. It's not specifically for the AGOA quota concession, although it does mean that the AGOA quota concession can now be used. So what is this agreement for us in South Africa, looking at the South African Poultry Association in particular? Well, because, because this is a health concession, the concern for the industry is, is it safe? Is it warranted? What are the risks? And in our view, it is important that we don't bring avian influenza into South African chicken flocks because we've never had it in chickens in South Africa. It has unfortunately been in ostriches more than once, but never in chickens. So I'm speaking to you now as the head of the South African Poultry Association, but I also am one of a dozen people on a global expert panel on avian influenza. And wearing that hat, I can say that the proposed regionalization protocol is a fairly high-risk strategy, and it is possible that it could be too risky for South Africa and in health. Is this a threat also with regards to the dumping of chickens in South Africa as compared to what we produce ourselves? The, the in-principle agreement that the South African industry has with its U.S. counterpart is to allow them to dump 65,000 tons of bone-in portions a year. It's got actually nothing to do with animal health concerns, although the two are now being mixed up, unfortunately. And we'd rather deal with animal health concerns in the normal course of business 
because it happens all the time, and deal with trade disputes separately. But that's not going to happen, I'm afraid. Why is it that not going to happen? Because the nature of trade is that any country uses the power that it has to get what it wants. And in this case, South Africa has a lot to lose if it ever benefits are withdrawn, not only from the agricultural benefits, which are being expected to be withdrawn by the 4th of January, but in terms of the motor car industry and quite a few other industries. And our country can little afford to lose even more jobs outside of agriculture than it will lose in the poultry. But now, Kevin, I hear what you're saying from an international perspective. But we have uh, our trading partners within Africa itself, and as South Africa is a member of BRICS, how would that affect us uh, negatively? Well, I think what's important from an African perspective, I mean, not for all African countries, including ourselves, is we all want to feed ourselves. We actually, none of us want to rely on food from elsewhere in the world. And meat and chicken eggs are one of the things that all African countries can actually produce for themselves. In principle, any African country that has a decent food security strategy will be thinking, how do we produce our own? The fact that we've had to make a concession to allow for a go to be renewed is something, by the way, that is specific to South Africa. That quota will not go to any of the South countries. So it will not go to Botswana, Lesotho, Namibia or Swaziland. It will only be consumed in South Africa. Elsewhere in Africa, in particular in Ghana, their poultry industry was almost destroyed by dumping from Europe. It doesn't matter where the product comes from. If it's being dumped, it's going to destroy it. But, Kevin, I mean, experience has shown that this type of agreements, whether we compromise or not, it is going eventually to kill us. If you look at, for instance, if you can divert a little bit about the cashew nut industry in Mozambique, this is what happened. So are we putting a news for ourselves that it's okay that we can be hanged and hanged for trade's sake because we have to deal with this whether we like it or not? If every one of the countries in Africa is a developing country, so what that means is that we want the rest of the world, especially the developed world, to acknowledge that we need some leeway if we are going to develop ourselves and give better lives for all of our citizens, wherever we are in Africa. Most of our current trading relationships are really an extension of our colonial past. And we're hoping that some countries, and China's trying hard, will actually give us a different model where they prepare to acknowledge who we are and trade with us as developing countries. What the U.S. is doing is giving us a concession, which is what a go is, because we are developing, but then trying to take things back in return. And they're entitled to do that because of their concession or their gift to give. Is it something that African countries want? Is it something that South Africa wants? That's for each of our country's political leadership to decide. Kevin Lovell is the Chief Executive Officer for the South African Poultry Association and he was talking to Wandile Khalipa. Countries around the globe are today observing World Prematurity Day. Every year across the world, over 15 million babies are born too soon. Deaths due to premature birth complications are now the leading cause of deaths in children who have not yet reached their fifth birthday. Elizabeth Litiha. Preterm birth, also known as premature birth, is the birth of a baby at less than 37 weeks gestational age. Of the 15 million babies born too soon every year, one million of them die while millions others are disabled. 
Recent research has shown that many of these premature births and deaths are preventable with better availability of inexpensive treatments. Yvonne Francis Igwe of the international non-governmental organization Little Big Souls Mission says this is why it's necessary to raise awareness about the deaths and disabilities due to prematurity. World Prematurity Day is a day founded by Little Big Souls International Charitable Foundation, which is ourselves, and two dimes in the U.S. and EFCNI in Europe. And this day was founded in order to honor the million babies that die each year globally and the 15 million babies that are born each year, again, globally. We find that preterm birth is a hidden crisis. You find that some of the health problems that preterm babies have are simply due to the fact that they're out, you know, earlier than nine months' time. So they have underdeveloped immune systems. So you might find preterm babies are clearly very susceptible to infections. So we've got to keep them in neonatal units that are highly, highly focused on infection control. So you find issues such as jaundice, sepsis, which is infection that can come through the cord. That is something that preterm babies and term babies as well has to be noted. You know, they might have more serious health problems where they've got underdeveloped organs, you know, hearts or kidneys or what have you. Estimates show that the numbers are going up almost everywhere, including in the developing world where the rate of cesarean sections has increased as women elect to have their baby at a time of their own choosing. In poor countries where most of the deaths occur, the main causes of premature delivery are infections, malaria, HIV, AIDS, and the high number of adolescent girls getting pregnant. Francis Iguetels of Africa, where she says the situation is no different. The situation is absolutely terrible across the continent, from Nigeria to Ghana, Sierra Leone, Senegal, Togo, Ethiopia, Malawi, in South Africa. The figures remain distressingly high. For example, in Nigeria, out of 773 babies that are born each year, 336,000 babies die to preterm birth. This is something that ought to be addressed. However, she says progress has been made in recent years in addressing the world's largest killer of newborn babies. I think there's a lot of progress. When Little Big Souls was set up, standing as the voice for the premature baby born in Africa, standing as the voice the organization that gives the chance to preterm babies in terms of our funding of medical care, donating equipment, supporting and advocating on this issue. At the time, nobody talked about preterm birth. But now, in conjunction with our global partners, which I mentioned earlier, and more recently, we now have specific data on country estimates specific data on the rate of preterm birth and suddenly we have a global movement. This is the time to increase our momentum. This is the time for everyone to really key into this cause. As premature babies continue to die at shocking high levels, experts say countries must act now if they are to achieve the vision of the Sustainable Development Goals which was adopted by the global community in September this year. Among other things, The goals call for countries to end preventable child and maternal mortality by 2030. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Elizabeth Lidira in Johannesburg. You still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 1727 Central African time.
and we're going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time this evening. Now, destructive rains in Malawi render people without homes and power last night. The rains also washed away bridges, forcing vehicles to submerge in water. This is the first rain of the year in the country, whose record is that rains start falling in early December and January across the country. Many people could be seen removing fallen iron sheets from their houses and shops in the commercial capital Blantyre and surrounding towns such as Limbe, Chichiri, Nderande, among others. Our correspondent, George Mohango, joins us from Blantyre to tell us more. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest, George. Hello, good evening, and how are you? We are all right. Now, George, could you just tell us about where you were and uh, what actually happened when these rains started falling? In fact, uh, the time that uh, this, uh, this heavy downpour was happening, I was driving straight into the commercial capital plant uh, to, you know, do some other shopping. And basically, I found myself at one of the major shopping stores, which is uh, uh, the Chichi Shopping Mall, which houses game stores, shop right, pep stores, and a number of international shops. And I was blocked by the rains. I stopped right there at the game stores, and there was a heavy downpour, plus quite a number of, uh, you know, shops, being seen uh, with their roofs being blown off and the cars being submerged in water. And the same was with uh, Limbi, which is about maybe 100, uh, long, I mean 100 meters away from uh, the main shopping center. And where reports indeed indicated that uh, a number of bridges had been washed away and a number of shops, you know, totally in water. And I was, I was also at the very time, you know, in touch with a number of uh, people who really are in the know about uh, this uh, kind of weather, who they said that this is first, this is the first of its kind, and that it is rendering some shivers to quite a number of Malawians. But indeed, it was very terrifying seeing some, seeing some shops whose roofs corrugated iron sheets being blown off. There's now an El Nino effect all over the world, really, as weather patterns change. Um, we know that South Africa hasn't been getting the rains that it's supposed to get, which should have started already, um, and you're telling us that they started early in Malawi. Was it expected that in Malawi these rains were, um, were going to start now? Were the predictions by weather experts? According to the weather experts, their predictions were that straight uh, rains would be somewhere around in December or early January, not this particular day or yesterday. And it was very hot for the past one month, very hot, and I'm talking about degrees, um, the average, more especially in the commercial rest of it was about 38 to 9%. Uh, so that's uh, minus the hottest districts of the electoral districts, uh, like Mangochi and then the lower Shire district of Chipao and Sanye, which are always here, prone to plant. So these, these rains were not even were not even expected. That's why I should say that uh, the weather experts have now come in to explain more about this El Nino weather. Um, George, I'm going to ask you to stay on the line a little bit. We're going to have to take news headlines from Enmosa. Please stay with us. A very good afternoon to you. Rwanda Senate has approved a draft constitution to allow President Paul Kagame to seek a third term in office. 
German police in the city of Aachen have arrested two women and a man in an operation linked to the Paris attacks, which killed at least 130 people. And global environmental groups have expressed outrage at the failure of G20 leaders to support initiatives aimed at assisting poorer countries to cope with the impact of climate change. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you very much. And we still have George Mohango, our correspondent in Blantyre, telling us about those destructive rains in Malawi that rendered people without homes and power. Those rains happened last night. Uh, now, George, were there any casualties? There weren't any casualties. And uh, the police have also confirmed that uh, despite that no uh, person has died or got injured in the process, the only things that have been damaged so far are indeed vehicles, which we have seen in various pictures and through different, uh, you know, sport checks. There, is, there are indications, and we can clearly see that uh, various, you know, uh, trees or branches of trees have been falling on vehicles that are parked in various offices. As you know, commercial capital plant have the history of not cutting the branches that are, you know, within the streets or within the roads. So that is what the city authorities are currently working on, making sure that all the branches that are, you know, making their way into the main road, they have to be cut. So police have said no casualties, but vehicles, roofs of various houses, and houses, shops have been blown off or, you know, destructed. Um, tell us a bit more about that, um, that damage to property. Um, the value of the total... Uh, uh, cost or the total cost of the uh, uh, damaged property, according to the police, is not in, not in, not because they're still making some evaluations. And I did speak to one of the police officers in in in, in, in Blantyre, who is the spokesperson. Uh, that's uh, Tivala Gladys. She said that uh, it's now very and not on for them to give out, you know, the calculated cost of all the damaged properties. But maybe come Friday they will be able to do that as their police uh, fellow officers are still you know, calculating the damage in cooperation with the disaster uh, management affairs. Um, and is there any assistance that's been given to people who have been left without property? Um, and I suppose people whose cars as well were washed away in those floods. Basically, if you talk about maybe vehicles, it's only the uh, insurance companies which are now wearing the burden because definitely most of the cars in Malawi are on comprehensive insurance or third party. So for those vehicles that have been damaged, then definitely the insurance com- com- companies are indeed receiving some complaints or some claims. As for houses, it's the same thing. If those houses were insured, then definitely, just like various shops which you've seen their roofs, corrugated iron sheets uh, blown off, they are also queuing in various insurance companies. Suffice to say that if there is anybody else who has been, you know, injured, that is yet to come into the, into the limelight by the police officers. And according to various health officials, uh, for instance, Queen Elizabeth Central Hospital, which is the major river hospital in Blanta, scattering the southern region, has not yet come out clearly as to 
how many people have been flocking there. But the disaster preparedness, managing, disaster management affairs has not yet come in to assist the need. As you might recall, that it's very challenging for Malawians to start receiving various relief items when they've been, you know, uh, uh, hit by various uh, floods dating back to the recent moments or recent years where people would take maybe about weeks or two weeks without getting any relief items from the government. And are there places of safety that they can run to? In terms of our safety measures, what the authorities, what the police and what other I mean, security officers are saying, it's important that people need not to park their cars under trees. And secondly, they have to ensure that the buildings or the houses that they are living in or occupying are really certified by the Blanda city authorities in terms of security, be it fire, be it disheverance and the like. So this is a general warning that is coming out from the police, city authorities and the government going out to each and every person, assuming that the same heavyrance will continue. But today it's been, it, it, it has been very bright, very sunny. All right, thank you very much for joining us, George. Thank you very much. George Mohango, there's our correspondent. He is joining us on the line from Blantyre in Malawi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You still with Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. It is Channel Africa One on Twitter. If you want to send us SMSs, it's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That is plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven. Nine five seven nine three zero, and you can give us any feedback that you have on some of our stories that we are currently carrying in the program. Now, South Africa's carbon bill is coming under massive fire with the Worldwide Fund South Africa saying that foregoing a carbon tax is akin to shooting itself in the foot. Salim Fakir, head of the Living Planet Unit at the Worldwide Fund South Africa, says his organization urges caution against the idea of rejecting the carbon tax outright, given the recent international developments that will come back to bite South Africa if, it's still, if it is ill-prepared for where the rest of the world is going, especially its major trading. Yes, the Treasury has put out a draft bill for carbon tax, and the idea of the carbon tax is to say... If you uh, a company that uses coal, for example, and you produce energy like electricity or petrol, that leads to a release of carbon dioxide emissions. And the government is saying, well, that is been done for so long, it causes not only greenhouse gas problems, but also, you know, has implications for general pollution in the country. The government wants to tax it. It's a bit like the, uh, if you're a smoker and you buy cigarettes, and the cigarettes uh, smoke causes harm to your health and to others, the government wants to put a stop to that. So this is the idea behind the carbon tax. Why is it that uh, South Africa's foregoing of a carbon tax would be akin to shooting itself on the foot? The main reason is that if we decide we don't want to put a carbon tax, it's not going to stop other countries 
from doing that, which basically means that if we are trading with China, Europe and North America, and if our goods that are produced here are made from you know, high levels of carbon dioxide or carbon intensity, then it might give the other countries the right to put a tax on our goods. So we have to watch out for this in the long term. I'm not saying it is happening now. It's probably already happening indirectly. For instance, big, large retail companies are already, like Tesco's and so on, are already you know, interested in their customers who are asking them about the carbon footprint of, let's say, tomatoes or you know, fruit that we export from South Africa. When they start asking this, they're saying, if the carbon footprint is too high, we're not going to buy the goods. So this is why you need to be careful that if we do not begin to change the carbon intensity of our own economy, we may find ourselves in a situation where other countries have already made the adjustment or they have already moved in the direction of lowering their carbon footprint. They may have the right to impose penalties on us. So us having this carbon tax being implemented in South Africa, how will it work for us? Well, I think at the, at the moment there are, of course, concerns about three things. The one is, is it the right timing because the economy is on a slowdown? And should we have a carbon tax under the current conditions? The second thing is that if you have a carbon tax, you must give the consumer the opportunity to be able to use other energy sources that are less carbon intense. And this year is, requires a, you know, transformation or changes in the electrical sector. And thirdly, if consumers are forced to pay for it, particularly poorer consumers, it will be harmful to them. So we have to resolve this when we're thinking about a carbon tax. In general, you know, the carbon tax is a good idea. But if it's used very blindly and without understanding of its impact on different types of consumers, it can do more harm than good. Do not do it blindly is the main point. Yeah. Who in particular is going to benefit most when it comes to this issue of this carbon tax? I think it's, a, it's mostly a general economic thing. Certainly companies that are in the cleaner technologies would benefit the most because they become more competitive. Their products would be bought more because anybody that produces a product or energy source that is of high carbon is going to become less competitive in the market. So that's the main thing. It it will boost the uptake of cleaner technologies. People like myself, ordinary citizens of these particular countries that are practicing or implementing this carbon tax, how do we benefit? I think at the moment, you know, the benefit is not direct. But in the long term, the benefit would be that you would have more cleaner technologies that are healthier, that potentially would be cheaper because we're reducing them in a larger scale. And given where electricity prices are going from ESCOM, it's important that these cleaner technologies become more available to ordinary households, that they're not totally dependent on supply from ESCOM. The rest of the world as it is, is waiting for a success in Paris. And looking at pressure mounting against fossil fuel, especially coal through disinvestment campaign and other measures, as South Africa, where do we stand? 
I think South Africa is basically internationally looking for a global agreement because then it puts all the countries on the same level playing field. I think South Africa's domestic policy needs to match its international ambition and leadership, and we're saying that that is not aligned properly at the moment. And I think that thirdly, it's in the interest of the globe to work together because if they don't work together, then the ability to bring about change in new technologies and a reduction of the carbon emissions will become more difficult. And this is why we need to push for a global agreement. How ready would be countries of the world for this carbon price or other measures to ensure that carbon intensity is reduced over time? So many of the 14 to 20 developed economies are already moving in that direction. I think emerging economies are doing it more slowly. Obviously, for reasons because they have high levels of inequality and so on, so obviously they have to be more careful. But certainly China is going to lead the way as one of the second largest or even largest economy in the world at the moment. They are already leading the way. South Korea, certain parts of the U.S., you already see this, certainly Europe already. And already when we take that into account, potentially more than 50% of the global countries that are producing more of global GDP are already going to implement one form of carbon price or the other. That is Salim Fakir. He is the head of the Living Planets Unit at the Worldwide Fund South Africa, talking to Wandi Lekalipa. The African Leadership Academy, in partnership with Channel Africa, proudly brings you the African Youth Entrepreneurship Awards that will be held on the 17th of November. The Anzisha Prize celebrates five years and has announced the 12 finalists aged between 15 and 22, up for the 75,000 US dollar prize money. Join us live at Honeyju, Johannesburg, where Channel Africa will be broadcasting live. Get the opportunity to interact with us and the finalists. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Tuana Netulo has your economic news. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. The Department of Trade and Industry has assured South Africans that veterinarians in both South Africa and the U.S. have been working around the clock to ensure that chicken coming into the country from the U.S. is safe and avian flu-free. Earlier today, the South African Poultry Association raised concerns around the health risk associated with this. The organization has maintained that some level of risk still exists. The two countries signed an agreement allowing the U.S. to resume its export of chicken products into South Africa. However, the DTI has highlighted that a lot of work has to be done to ensure that no risk is posed to the country. Kolelwa Mlumbi-Peter is the Deputy Director General at the DTI. The objective of South Africa is to ensure that while facilitating trade and U.S. products to access the South African market, we do so in a way that will not uh, put South Africa at risk because there were a number of concerns in terms of diseases that are in the U.S. that our vets had identified to be an issue of concern.
So as a result, uh, there have been various discussions between our vets and the U.S. vets to find an amicable solution to these issues. Still in South Africa, business confidence in the manufacturing sector has recorded its lowest level in four years. It decreased by 10 index points to 38 in the third quarter. Manufacturers have also raised concerns over water shortages as a result of the current drought. Pan-African economist Iraj Abdien says the sector remains fragile. The key reason for the sector being fragile is domestic and international demand. The reality is that global GDP is declining. There are all kinds of of, uh, a range of actually tax laws uh, coming in. Uh, Part has to do with um, income tax. Part has got to do with uh, carbon tax. Part has got to do with potentially graduate tax. So there's a whole slew of, of these, none of them on the books, so to speak, but all of them in debate, political debate, and therefore it causes uncertainty. Nigeria has issued its final allocations for subsidized gasoline imports for the fourth quarter at 1.41 million tons. The West African nation imports the bulk of its gasoline requirement because of its dilapidated refining system. Nigerians have also started panic buying, forming long queues at petrol stations since March. A severe fuel crisis had crippled the country in May because of a standoff between marketers and the outgoing administration over whether their debts would be honoured. Africa's leading quick service and casual dining restaurant franchisor, Famous Brands, has signed a groundbreaking agreement with global brand Paul to become their South African licensed partner for a 10-year period. Paul is a family-owned French chain of bakery cafes established in 1889 in northern France. Internationally, Paul has partnered with operators across Europe, Africa, Asia, America and the Middle East and is now represented in 41 countries. And finally, Kenya's central bank held its benchmark lending rate at 11.50%. This is due to the exchange rate stabilizing and the current account deficit narrowing. The bank raised the lending rate by 300 basis points earlier this year, in part to support the weakening shilling. As well as noting that the shilling had stabilized, the Monetary Policy Committee said in a statement that lower oil prices and a slowdown in consumer demand had helped narrow the currency account deficit. The trade gap has put pressure on the currency. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 14.20 South African rand, at 10.54 Botswana Pula and at 12 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.65 to the British pound and at 0.93 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,078 and platinum at $860 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $43.93 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Jolane. It's time for Sports News. Here's Masabudi Makura.
Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news. Kenya's national team, Harambe Stars, have not yet arrived in Cape Verde. Harambe Stars left Nairobi on Monday night and have been flying for over 15 hours after their flight was delayed in Nairobi after a chartered flight demanded full payment. Harambe Stars players were stranded at Wilson Airport on Monday where they had gone to board a chartered flight. In a day full of drama, the players refused to leave camp unless their outstanding allowances were fully settled before the return leg of the 2018 World Cup qualifier. Meanwhile, the Kenyan's national football team Marambe Stars fly out straight to Addis Ababa for the upcoming Sarkafa Senior Challenge Cup, which will be held in Ethiopia from the 21st of November to the 6th of December. Nicholas Mosonye, a Kenyan, is the Secretary General of Sarkafa. Our Senior Challenge Cup starts on the 21st of November and it ends on the 6th of December. We are very much interested to know who are participating who are not participating and the general organization of the competition. <clears throat> and all the programs are in place to ensure that you organize a good competition. We are starting on the 21st, as I've said, and we have 12 teams competing in this competition. We will have the opening ceremony in Addis, and then the teams, Group A and B, will move to Awasa. But Group D, will, Group C will remain in Bahadar for all the group matches. We want to spread the matches across Ethiopia as much as we can. Kenya, the current champions, are pooled in Group B alongside the Uganda Cranes, who are the 13-time champions, Burundi, as well as Djibouti. Hosts Ethiopia are in Group A, and they also have Zambia, Tanzania, and Menos, Swaziland, while Group C includes South Sudan, Sudan, Zambia, or rather Zanzibar, as well as Rwanda. Meanwhile, Orega Sassia, the mother of Samson Sassia, Nigeria's ex-international soccer star and current coach of the under-23 national dream team, has reportedly been kidnapped. The kidnappers are yet to demand ransom from the family. Channel Africa's Tun Urban is in Lagos, Nigeria, and has more on the story. We are just having a very disturbing story of Samson Sassia's mother, 72-year-old mother, being kidnapped. And of course, the Nigeria Football Federation has appealed passionately to the kidnappers of the 72-year-old mother of under-23 national team head coach Samson Sassia to release the old woman on learning of the unfortunate incident just moments ago, NFF President Amadou Pinik was downcast. This is quite disturbing. We are just preparing for a crucial 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifying match and the under-23 boys are already in the Gambia for a pre-cup nations training camp. Why this? All we can do is to appeal to the kidnappers to free Samson Siasia's age mother. Samson is on a, on a critical national assignment presently, and the last he needs is this kind of distraction. The 72-year-old Mrs. Ogere Siasia, according to Samson, was abducted in the village of Odoni, Bayesa State, by three men on motorbike. On athletics news, Athletics Kenya Senior Vice President David Ogeo has refu- refu- refuted claims they received improper payment from Nike following reports he is being investigated by the IAAF Ethics Commission. Ogeo, alongside with AKA President Isai Kibligat and former Treasurer Joseph Kuyana, have been mentioned adversively in connection to dealings with skit sponsors Nike. Ogeo's case has received much interest in international fears since he sits in the IAAF Council as a member. The Council is the top decision-making organ of athletics umbrella body.
And finally, the World Athlete, um, Governing Body of Athletics, IWAF, has announced the five-person inspection team which will monitor the cleanup process in Russia, which has been suspended from the sport over widespread alleged state-sponsored doping. Russia was barred on Friday after the World Anti-Doping Agency report accused its state security services of colluding with the country's athletics federation to enable athletes to take performance-enhancing drugs with confidence that test results would be suppressed. IAAF President Sebastian Coe says the, um, the, the, the Russian, um, Russia can only return to athletics once it has proved it had set up a new framework to stop doping. Former Olympic sprinter Frankie Fredericks from Namibia was among the four IAAF council members who will join Norwegian anti-doping expert Rune Anderson, who had been named as an independent head of the team on Friday. While well, those are sports news at the South, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's talk about top stories. Security heightened in East Africa following the recent terror attack in France. Parts of Malawi left without houses and power following destructive rains. In economics, South Africa's weak uh, rand negates most of the benefits of cheaper oil prices. And in sports, 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifiers underway across Africa. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Catherine Malika, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus 27796957930, plus 27796957. 930. You can also find us on Twitter, Channel Africa One. We leave you with a Chabalala by something Soweto. of my pride. I speak the language of the people of the first kind, diluted into words that spit like gunfire.